0: Hey, good morning, Highland. Man, that was way better than the eight o'clock. They were it was, like, it was like one guy was like, "Good morning, Isaiah." Could hardly hear him. But you guys are on it. You guys are are here. Man, I'm so grateful to be with you guys to spend some time remembering, uh, talking through, praying for uh, the persecuted church. I mean, this is a special Sunday. Uh, the first Sunday of November every year is always set aside for uh, for the purpose of us just praying for our brothers and sisters um, who are. Who are being persecuted, whether that means they are being mocked and ridiculed, or whether it's vandalism to their churches or properties, or maybe it's martyrdom. Um, it could be a lot of things, imprisonment. There's a lot of ways that uh, our brothers and sisters around the globe are being persecuted, and it's a special Sunday when we, not just as a local church, but uh, united with other Christ followers uh, to pray and remember those in chains. So we want to take some time to do that before we dive into uh, our sermon today. And, and what I want to do is just spend some time uh, looking at a few principles that allow us to have anchored faith in God. Because when we think about the persecuted church, the way they're able to endure, whether it's now or how it's been historically, it's been because of their faith in the Lord, how God has just carried them, has stabilized their souls at different times. I want to talk about that today as, as we get into God's word. So let's pray uh, for our, our brothers and sisters around the world, and then we'll spend some time in God's word. Father, uh, thank you so much for this day. And, and certainly, Lord, whatever comes through our door, God, we know, we declare that you are our rock and our fortress. And so, God, we are lifting up our brothers and sisters around the world who are, are enduring persecution in, in a variety of ways. We pray, God that you would just encourage them, give them hope today, that they may endure, that they may continue to spread the gospel, work for the kingdom, see the community around them impacted for, uh, for Christ's sake. God, we pray that you would give them wisdom as they try and figure out now how they need to operate, how they need to do ministry and do the work of your son. We pray, God, that you would be with them. And God, we also pray that that the advancement of the gospel would just go forth, that revival would break out, that people would come to you, and God, that you would just be with them. So be with us now here today in Wausau as we spend some time looking through scripture at those who have experienced great uh, success and prosperity and those who have suffered. But God, what was transcendent was their faith. Open up our hearts today, God, to dive in, To to a closer relationship with you. Draw us to yourself. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, one of my all-time favorite movies is the movie Braveheart. Now, and I recognize just saying the title, just saying the name Braveheart, there's probably a lot of emotions or thoughts that you're feeling right now especially if you're a man over the age of 20 who's, who's seen the movie. Because you know like at, at certain times during the movie you are feeling angry or you're feeling inspired, you're feeling sad, you're feeling motivated and encouraged. There's a lot of, of a variety of emotions that you can feel during this movie. And as I was thinking about this, this sermon, I was thinking about Persecution Church Sunday, thinking about what this means, my mind went to William Wallace. I went to the movie Braveheart. Now, if you've not seen the movie Braveheart, let me just share a brief summary of what this movie is about. Now, maybe you don't know this. This is actually, it's a fictional movie, but William Wallace, whom the movie is based around, is historic. That He was a real person, and multiple documents throughout history have rec- has recorded him as Scotland's greatest hero. So he was a real person. But the guy that I'm thinking about was played by Mel Gibson. And in the movie, he seeks to avenge his wife, who was killed by an English soldier shortly after they were married. And so Wallace strategically gathers a few of his fellow Scotsmen, and he he places them in in certain ways that they defeated a small English garrison that had aided in his wife's death. And this act just kind of builds momentum and, and sends Scotland into a revolution where they are now feeling emboldened to escape the tyranny of England. So more and more Scotsmen are willing to stand up to the the tyrannical leadership of England, and they are starting a rebellion against them. And throughout the movie, we see this momentum building and, and Wallace begins to solidify himself as a fierce warrior. In one line in the movie, they say that he stands seven feet tall and kills men by the hundreds. Of course, that's how the legend was growing throughout the movie. We also know that Wallace was an incredible orator. The way he was able to give a speech was, was incredible. And again, if you've seen the movie, some of the speeches that they, that they wrote into the script was, it was phenomenal. And one in particular, maybe the most quotable, was a scene, it was the Battle of Sterling Bridge. And this is when, when Mel Gibson is riding the horse, his, his face was painted blue. You probably just saw the picture behind me. This is when he gives his most quotable, most inspirational speech when he says, I fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, you would be willing to trade all those days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they they never take our freedom. Now, if you've seen the movie, in your mind, you were replaying Soldiers holding up their arms and their spears and their shields, and they're shaking. They are ready to go to battle. He was able to rouse motivation and encouragement with his oration skills. It was magical. It was was amazing. And then we see at the end of the movie, Wallace is betrayed by one of his friends, and he's actually executed for crimes of treason against England. But that only fuels the, 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 the passion and the inspiration to keep moving towards freedom on behalf of his fellow Scotsmen. Now, the reason I I want to share this today is because I really feel like it fits well with the text that I want to share from Hebrews 11. Because we see that there's a couple of things that we see in the movie that I feel like resonates so much with our hearts. Deep in our gut, it just strikes this emotional chord. And as we watch this movie or, or, or hear a story something like this, it does a few things to us. First of all, it resonates with us because we desire to be courageous, And a guy like William Wallace was courageous. He was willing to face fear head on. And even if it was going to cost him his life, he was willing to step into that space and and be bold for the cause he believed in. I think the second way this resonates is it, it, it says, man, this guy was willing to stand up for a cause greater than himself. I want to do that too. I want to stand up for a cause greater than myself. And number three, it says, man, I want to be an inspiration to other people. I see others, and I just want to help them move along in their life's journey. So it strikes them emotionally with us. And But what's really incredible, as, as great as that story is and as moving and inspirational as it can be, when I think about the text that we're going to be spending time looking at today, I love the bravery and sacrifice and passion that Wallace portrays, but I love what I see in the pages of Scripture as well. Because just as Wallace was willing to to die and and sacrifice himself for for the freedom of Scotland, I love how these men and women in Scripture were able to stand up to spiritual tyranny. They were able to, to, to endure such pain and affliction so that the kingdom of God might go forward. They wanted to endure persecution and they remained faithful in persecution so that others might find hope in Christ and the message that we see in Hebrews 11 it still resonates with us today. What's even more amazing that while many have suffered historically, have been persecuted historically, today in the 21st century we see brothers and sisters of Christ still facing persecution. And so what I want to do is I want to look at some of these historical accounts that we see in Hebrews 11. Some are mentioned by name, some are not mentioned at all, but both lived incredible lives of faith. And so we're going to be in verses 32 through 40, and we're going to read what the writer says about what faith looks like and how it may help us endure persecution and suffering in our own life. So let's read these verses together, verses 32 through 40 in Hebrews chapter 11. And what more shall I say? refusing to accept release, so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though committed through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, during our time together, I just want to walk through three principles, a few principles that we can draw from this text that will allow us to have unshakable faith that will draw us closer and closer to the Lord and will allow us to engage with the persecuted church now in a really fruitful way. Let's talk about principle number 1. Principle number 1 is this and it's going to be the foundation for our time together is be anchored by having faith in God. Be anchored by having faith in God now hebrews chapter 11 is all about the heroes of the faith those who lived lives of faith and refused to to step down from their position of faith they were all in for the lord and notice in verse number 32 there are six names mentioned in the text we have gideon barak samson jephthah david and samuel now these are not the only heroes mentioned by name in the text but these are a few that i want to spend some time focusing on and examining their lives today. Now listen, these men, they were nowhere near perfect when it comes to their morality. In fact, some of the sinful choices that they made, they were quite tragic in a lot of respects. But one thing they had, one of the one thing that kind of bound their hearts together, and we see this traced through each of their stories, was they had an unshakable faith in God. They were anchored. They were steady. They knew where they stood. And now in Hebrews, the writer is going to use these men as examples of what biblical faith looks like to a church that is being persecuted, to a church that is going through tragedy, that a church is, is shaking a little bit, that needs a bit of stability in their life. He says, this is how you have it. And so let's look a little bit at why the, the writer chooses these men to say these are, are, are men of faith. Well, let's start with Gideon. See, Gideon was responsible for leading an army of 300 against the Midianite and Amalekite armies who are described, these two armies are described in Scripture as a valley filled with locusts in abundance. See, this army was so big that the the writer did not even put a numerical value on it. He says, it's just like, imagine seeing a valley filled with locusts. That's what this army looks like. It's a great word picture for the size of this army. Now, when we think military strategy, oftentimes we would say, well, if my army is bigger than my enemy's army, then I probably have a good shot at winning. That's, that's logical military strategy. But God says, Gideon, here's what I want you to do. I want to take your army of 32,000, and I want you to whittle it down. And so Gideon obeys the Lord. He follows the voice of God. He actually takes an army of 32,000. He whittles it down to the number of 300. And we got to 300, God says, That's who I want you to fight with. And here's what I want you to do. So Gideon instructed his men. They encamped the army around. They kind of surrounded it on all sides. And they found a great victory in battle against a a, a massive army without ever lifting a sword. See, what they did is they shouted and they blew trumpets and they broke pots and started all kinds of chaos with the enemy, uh, the uh, enemy's army. And they began to turn on themselves and were actually destroying one another. That's how God operates. It's totally outside of our logic at times. That's oftentimes what faith looks like. getting walked in that, getting obeyed. He saw a great victory in battle. The next person the author lists is Barak. And we also read about him in the book of Judges. And much like Gideon, Barak had a great victory in battle for the nation of Israel as well. He was the commander of the army that, that Deborah had instructed him to lead. Deborah was a judge at that time. And the, the, ar- the army that he and his fellow soldiers went against were wiped out completely except for one man, General Sisera. He was the, the general of the enemy's army. And he kind of saw the riding on the wall as the army was, was being uh, minimized over and over again. He began to run away. And he actually ran to a home uh, of a woman named Jael. And she welcomed him in. She hid him under her rug that was in her home. And as he was laying fast asleep, Jael took a tent peg in her tent and a hammer, and as he was sleeping, she put the tent peg on his head, drove it into his side, and finally defeated and wiped out the enemy completely. Barak was a faithful man. He had great victory in battle. We also have Samson, another hero found in the book of Judges. Now, you can read about Samson's life in Judges 13 to 16, and, and his life was one of legend. Far from perfect, he had a lot of moral flaws in his life. But his life was epic, life of a, a one of legend. Let me just share some of Samson's highlight reel with you. Samson killed a lion with his bare hands. That's a pretty cool thing on a resume. He, he, he defeated an army of the Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey. Probably not my weapon of choice, but that's what he did. He destroyed them all. And then the Holy Spirit, as it would move upon him, gave him superhuman type of strength. And in his last act on life, he killed more Philistines in his death than he ever did in his life. He was flawed. He, was, he made terrible choices at times, but he was a man of faith. And now he's being mentioned in Hebrews 11 for some of the exploits that he did because of his faith. You know, may be a lesser known mentioned uh, person in this list is Jephthah. And Jephthah's story starts very interestingly. I, I find it very fascinating because it's very unassuming. You would read about his story, and you would never think, well, this guy's going to be an epic warrior someday. But listen to how his story starts. Judges 11, 1 to 3. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have the inheritance of our father's house, for you are the son of another woman." Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. I mean, up to this point, it's kind of unassuming. I mean, he's got the mighty warrior thing. That's really cool. But he's the son of a prostitute. He's shunned by his family. And what little we know up to this point is worthless fellows collected around him wherever he went. No, nothing about this says you're going to be a mighty warrior. You are going to be a man of faith. But that's exactly what he was. He was a faithful steward of what God has given him. He he loved the Lord. He walked in faith. He made some bad choices, but he was the captain of the army that defeated the Ammonites. Now, he made, again, some bad choices. It was something that cost his daughter dearly, but he was a man who was anchored in God. He was anchored in faith. He had some situations in his own life, but he was anchored in God. And then the writer mentions Samuel and David. This was the beginning of the monarchy, the end of the time period of the judges. And David was the second king of the nation of Israel. And also known as, David was known as Israel's greatest king. He's also defined and described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And we would need a whole sermon to talk about the laundry list of simple choices that David made in his life. But he's mentioned as a God, a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord, walked in faith And even Samuel, going back to Samuel's birth when Hannah said, hey, I'm gonna give this boy to you, God. I'm gonna bring him to the temple, use him as you wish, and dedicated him to the Lord. Now, Samuel could also wield a sword, and he had a few battles and victory as well throughout his life. But these are all men of faith. And so the the writer is is drawing our attention back to this history, to, to, to Israel's history. Hey, look at these men of faith. Look at what they did. And that we see this 33 through 35. They conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. He's referencing the prophets there. And what a faith booster for a church who's enduring so much. Because at some point, they're asking, how do we get through this? Where is our hope? Where is our light in the darkness? And then this letter arrives, and we get to Hebrews 11. They talk about all the heroes of faith. Look at Samson. Look at Gideon. Look at Brock. Look at all they did. Why? Why would have this been so encouraging to them? Because the writer is conveying to them, listen, these individuals did not accomplish marvelous things because they were remarkable in themselves. They were able to accomplish so much because they had a remarkable faith in a remarkable God. It was not about them. It was not about their gifted, not about what they could accomplish. It was all about God. It was all about placing their faith. You want to find stability. You want the the ship to be steadied. Find an anchor in God. Be firmly anchored in the Lord. So to a persecuted church, the writer is saying, be anchored by having faith in God. Be anchored by having faith in God. Yes, the pain is real. The situation is terrible, but stay tethered to God. Be anchored in God. Remain faithful. That's a great principle for us to apply as well. Highland Community Church, may we remain anchored by faith in God. Now, I would imagine that most of us are going to go home and we're going to watch some of the football games this afternoon. Think about the the advertising you'll see throughout the, the commercials today. You're going to talk about the next pill that can make us feel better? The next diet where we can lose 30 pounds by Christmas? I'm good with that, but we find all these different things that that provide an anchor. Do this and you'll feel better. Find this, eat that, do this workout program. This is what's going to make you better. Think about what you'll see today during the Packers game. But the writer is saying, be anchored by having faith in God. He is the stabilizing factor. He is what gives us the encouragement to keep moving forward. And so the writer uses six individuals who had faith in God. And up to this point, there's a lot to be encouraged about in our text, isn't there? We're worrying about victories in battle, the mouths of lions being stopped, fire being put out, women receiving back the dead by resurrection. Sign me up for this. And then we get to the middle of verse 35 and what appears to be no apparent reason The writer takes a sharp left. Then he says, and one sentence later, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. And I would encourage us to look at some of the Jewish history that is beneath that verse right there. It's really, really powerful. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in de- dens and caves of the earth. Now, that's a stark contrast to what we just read, isn't it? I mean, we went from conquering heroes to those who are now being tortured. What's the deal with that? Because it's a, it's a sharp turn there. I'm reading about David and Samuel and Samson and all their heroic exploits. And now I'm talking about people who are being tortured. What's this all about? Well, remember, in the context of the chapter, what's happening here? The the writer is talking about those who have expressed remarkable faith even those who have seen great victories in battle, those who have accomplished remarkable things. It's, it's about those who have lived lives of faith. And now he's talking specifically to a, a topic that would resonate personally with a persecuted church. There were some that were tortured. There were some that were walking just like you are walking. I know that you're not experiencing mountaintop victory right now. I know you're experiencing persecution. Listen, there are others who walked the road too. And what, what got them through, what kept them tethered, what kept them stable was their anchored faith in God. That's, that's the point, is finding anchored faith in Christ. And that leads us to principle number two. Anchored faith means finding God as our greatest treasure. Whether we're going through mountaintop victory, William Wallace-type victory, or whether we are living lives of just suffering and pain, the point is we need to find God as our greatest treasure, And as we look at these two opposing views, this is exactly what we see. You know, happiness and hardships are oftentimes very poor indicators of what faith looks like. And the reason I say this is we can find ourselves on one of two ends of a spectrum. We can be on one end where we say, we look at a list like David and and Barak and Gideon and Samson. We say, that's what faith looks like. Man, they are prospering on all fronts. They have nothing but success. That is what faith looks like. But then we have the other end of the spectrum, where it's, wow, these people are suffering. They're enduring such pain. They're going through such hardship. That's what faith looks like. That's what real faith looks like. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves on either end of the spectrum. And so what this writer brilliantly does he says, hey, these men that were finding success and having great victory, they were people of faith. And these people who are going, are going through very difficult times and being persecuted and, and tortured and, and different things— they're people of faith as well. See, faith, anchored faith transcends, whether we're going through good times or bad times, it's for all people. So then what does anchored faith look like? Well, I think it means that we need to keep God our greatest treasure. But I think specifically in Hebrews eleven six, 6, it gives us at least one touchstone of what this looks like. And faith, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. For whoever would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So anchored faith in is treasuring God so much that we continue to draw near to him, whether we're going through good times or we are going through bad times. We are continuing to draw closer to God. And as we look at Hebrews 11, this is exactly what they do. When these individuals saw success, they saw blessing, they saw prosperity, it was all about their faith in God. And those who are now feeling the weight of persecution, being mistreated, it's all about faith in God. That's what anchored faith looks like. It means God is our sweetest treasure. We don't need other things to fulfill us and and be our sweetest treasure. We don't need other things to give us satisfaction. We need the Lord. We need God. When I think about this, I think about a quote that I read from Oswald Chambers not long ago that says, Faith For my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. There are certain situations that God allows to come our way that refine us, that that move us closer into the image of Jesus. And that's what anchored faith looks like. When we think of the persecuted church, this is what I think of with anchored faith. It's faith that confronts suffering with hardship and hardship with the reality that, God, you are still good. Yes, this is painful. Yes, this is terrible. I I don't want to walk through this, but God, you are still good. You are my sweetest treasure. In addition to this, in addition to these individuals finding God as their greatest treasure and and that allowing them to endure and steady their ships, we we also see that God's work is, is expanding ferociously in areas where persecution is present. I mean, if we just did a quick case study of the Church of China, if you're familiar with Open Doors USA, you know that they put a list out every year that that lists the top persecuted countries in the world. China currently right now is number 17. If you're curious, uh, Afghanistan is number one. But China is number 17. And and most researchers estimate that by the year 2030, there will be between... 250 and 300 million Christ followers in the next nine to 10 years. That would make China the largest Christian nation on the face of the earth. And it's number 17 on world persecution list. See, God moves when we see this persecution. We see fruitful kingdom advancement. Now I want to quote Pastor Andrew here. He preached a message called The Happy Hated a few weeks ago. And he, he said this quote, The strong hand of persecution facilitates wonderful fruit in the kingdom. Chambers says there's certain things we learn in the fiery furnace. The writer of Hebrews says all discipline, training, pain, suffering, it's, pain, it's painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is sometimes we're in that but later phase where it's just, I'm just trying to grind through this and, and the is saying, hey, listen, be anchored by having faith in God. Make God your sweetest treasure. And we see this all throughout this book. But oftentimes that can feel backward to us, can't it? It, it? The suffering, this idea of suffering, this idea of pain, this feels backwards to me. I don't understand this. And I think the reason this can feel opposite, that feels backwards, feels a little bit awkward, is because our idea of blessing is often viewed with a very American lens. You know, we, we have the American dream. We're going to make money. We're going to find comfort. I'm going to try and position my life in a way to where I don't have to feel very uncomfortable very often. And we, we get into this idea of the American dream, and there's certainly nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But I think when we spend too much time in that space and fail to realize that persecution is a reality, we get a false sense of what faith looks like. And so when suffering does befall us, we can go into this tailspin of questions and doubting and, and because we've not been anchored. And But if we look at church history, suffering, persecution, it's a part of the Christian life we should anticipate it we should expect it in fact listen to all the places in scripture that talks about the reality of suffering and persecution in the lives of Christ's followers jesus says in john 15:18 if the world hates you know that it hated me before it hated you i think of what paul says in second timothy chapter 3 indeed all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted Or John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then finally in Matthew 10. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's the reality of Christ's followers. Jesus said, he laid it all out there. This is the cost of following me. This is the cost of discipleship. And we have to understand that what we see, those appearing to have some kind of success and those enduring suffering, that doesn't always tell the full tale. Faith transcends no matter what kind of life we're living at that point. And in either case, either position, anchored faith means God is our sweetest treasure. God is our sweetest treasure. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, God is our sweetest treasure. Highland Church family, what's your sweetest treasure right now? What's our sweetest treasure What's the last thing we think about in the morning? What is it that draws us? What motivates us? What is our sweetest treasure? What is our desire? What are we clamoring and scratch, scratching our way to? What is our sweetest treasure? What's my? What's your sweetest treasure? No, we learn about anchored faith in God. That's, that's critical. That's point one. We also learn what that looks like. It's making God our sweetest treasure. And I feel like that leads to our third and final point really well. Anchored faith keeps our eyes fixed on something better. Anchored faith keeps our eyes fixed on something better. Now, as we look at chapter 11 of Hebrews, we notice at the end of the chapter, there's a, a natural conclusion to the chapter, and there's a natural transition to chapter 12. But let's focus on the conclusion of, uh, of chapter 11. Listen to how, how the writer ends here. It's, 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 again, drawing our attention, keeping our hearts, our minds, our eyes focused on something greater He says this, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, I think we need to talk about something here, because at the beginning of the text, it says that they actually obtained promises. And now, in verse number 39, it says they did not receive what was promised. So, how can you obtain a promise and not receive a promise all at the same time? Well, I think in verse number 39, most scholars tend to believe this is the promise of the Messiah. This is the promise of God becoming a man, living, sinlessly dying on a cross, rising again on the third day. And if we look at Hebrews 11, we notice that all the individuals listed, the heroes of faith, they died before that promise was realized, but they knew it was true. They knew it was going to happen. They knew that the Messiah would come. They knew that God would fulfill his promise. And so they believed it with their whole heart and they fixed their eyes on Jesus. They were focused on Christ. And that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, not just chapter 11, the entire book, that they may fix their eyes on something better. Jesus is greater than anything on this earth. So those who are walking in William Wallace type of victory, the the six individuals we mentioned, fix your eyes on Jesus. Those that are enduring painful persecution, fix your eyes on Jesus. I mean, notice how he transitions into chapter 12 and the thought that he leaves us here. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. So we need to be anchored by having faith in God. We need God to be our sweetest treasure. And how do we do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why does this matter so much? that we fix our eyes, that he is our focus, that we are drawn to him. I think verse three of chapter 12 gives us the answer. So that we may not grow weary or faint hearted. That We may not grow weary or faint hearted. So we need to ask ourselves, where is my sight fixed right now? What is my sweetest treasure? What are you looking at? What am I looking at? What are we looking at? What is it that we're pursuing and desiring? Because oftentimes what we look at becomes our treasure. Are we fixing our eyes on Jesus? Are we focused on Christ? Are we growing to be more like Christ? And the more we do that, when pain does come our way, we can fix our eyes on Jesus so, we that, so that we may not grow weary or faint hearted. And in the moments of great victory and, and success in our life, we fix our eyes on Jesus so that we may not grow weary or faint hearted. You see, it's the same for, for both sides of the, of the coin here. It transcends. What we focus on oftentimes becomes our treasure. What is our sight fixed on? Now, when it comes to engaging with the persecuted church, I feel like this passage is critical because it it does a couple of things for us. It gives us a sense of empathy and, and passion to pray for those who are suffering. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 3 says that we are to remember those in prison as in prison with them, right? And we are to to remember those who are feeling this affliction because we are a part of the same body. We have brothers and sisters all around the world who are suffering, and we are called to pray and remember and think about them. So I think a passage like this, when we think about anchored faith in God, it motivates us to pray. And then secondly, I think it allows us to take maybe some uh, look in the mirror of our heart. Where, where, Where are my sights focused? it is my sweetest treasure? Am I fixed on Jesus as I should be? Am I anchored by faith in God? Is that my story? Or do I need to, to, to make some steps forward? Or maybe you're here and you just need to take the first step by believing in Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. But wherever we're at on the spectrum, if we are here, we are following Christ Jesus, we love the Lord with all of our heart. We have to understand that anchored faith is the key. God has to be our sweetest treasure and we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so grateful for a passage that just really speaks to our heart. and uh, God, it gives us some empathy and some insight into what faith looks like. Now, I love the contrast that it builds between those who have had seeming prosperity and success and those who are just really going through some difficulties. But Lord, what, what transcended everything and what brought unity between the two spectrums was faith. Faith in your son Jesus, faith in you, God. We're grateful for a passage like this. God, I again want to just lift up our persecuted brothers and sisters up in prayer as, as they're dealing with, with pain and suffering that I just have not experienced or could not comprehend. So I lift them up to you, God, that you would give them wisdom, give them encouragement, give them hope. And God, as they continue to do the work of the gospel, that it would have a major impact on their communities and cities. And that revival would break out, God, and people would draw Uh, You would draw people to yourselves, and they would choose to be obedient and faithful in a life of of service to you. And God, so be with us um, over over the next few minutes as we close in worship. May you be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen.